Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 57. This is going to be the second part of our conversation with Andrew Root, and today we're going to be focusing on what does ministry look like in the secular age. Let's do this! So I do have to ask, and I might edit this part out because it might be controversial, but why, like just as American for yourself, why do you believe it's been important for, you know, the past number of generations for a president to say that they believe in God? Like I I have always been like, why has that been important? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You guys are like uh, pushing me right into my wheelhouse here. So my only hesitation in answering this is not like edit this out because I'm afraid the CIA is going to come after me or something. Um, I'm sure they don't care about me, uh, but I could talk too long. So you may have to cut me off. But it, it's interesting then to think about those kind of secular one, secular two, secular three. And this is a really interesting thing, I think, in conversation next to kind of Canada and the U.S. Because I think what you can say is that the U.S. is the most secular country of all the Western countries. Okay, I'm going to pause there because I know most of your people listening are like, BS, no way. You know, like they (laughs) they deny that. But you could only say that if you stop at secular one. So the separation of public and private, like in the American constitution is the absolute separation of church from the larger institutions, particularly of the federal government is the most secular one. Then you think of like England or the Scandinavian countries, they actually are the least secular one country. Like, you know, like the queen of England is still the head of the church of England, you know, like mm. there's ways that that can, there, it, it's the bone did not break as much in England as it did in America between public and private institutions and where religion is, is um, filed there. But then something fascinating happens because America is the most secular one country it becomes the least secular too. And because say England or the Scandinavian countries, Norway and Sweden are the least secular one, they become the most secular too. Mm. And so this is where the, the America, the president having to say, as always a lie, my favorite book is the Bible and God bless America all the time is because there's been such a break at the secular one level as opposed to like an English politician won't say that because that aligns you with power in a certain way. And where the American break has been so much, this is never true, of course, it's always an illusion. But to point towards religion, point towards a faith community is to say, I'm just like one of you. In my own private life, I do this. And so you can trust me. Now, even though I have a billion dollars in the bank and you know, went to, my dad bought his way my way into Yale. I'm just like you. I, you know, so God bless America. So it has this sense of America then being the least, you know, on studies, the least secular to of, of the countries. But this is also the problem with the globalization of American ministry forms, because America then is the most secular one, least secular too. It nevertheless is keeps its least secular to most people going to church, the Western countries by always having a crisis. And this is true of really Protestantism. Protestantism does believe that there is a fundamental crisis at the center of what it means to be a human being or of the world. And of course, that is that 
We are sinful and we need something from outside of us to save us. God needs to break in and save us. We cannot save ourselves. So to be Protestant is to kind of have this sense of a crisis. But what happens in America, because it's the most secular one, it becomes the least secular too, because it turns that crisis into an institutional reality of of almost free market religion. So we need to fight for market share. And it's a complete free market. Mm. Religion is complete free market in America. There's no state church. I mean, I know there isn't in Canada, but you still have this weird kind of connection to the UK in a weird way. But, you know, there's, there, it's a complete free market. And so the crisis is you got to keep building to get more people to come. And part of the problem with that is that almost all kind of mega church forms of American ministry get projected to the rest of the world as the way to do it. And people almost always are blind to the fact that these are trying to solve secular two issues. And they, they usually aren't secular three issues. And then we actually have more to learn from people across the globe than just, than just American megachurch pastors. Not to be mean to ch- mega, American megachurch pastors. They're nice people. Some <laughs> of them are my best friends. I'm friends with them. But, you know, there's also a deeper form of ministry. But it, it kind of takes on that kind of sense. So then when that gets projected, say, in to Ontario or something, and people feel like, oh my gosh, there are fewer and fewer people going to church. We need to go to a, an American megachurch to help us get more people to come, not realizing that really the issue is how do we talk about a living God? How do we point people? How do we form people in an imagination of a living God who speaks and acts, not just trying to get more people to come? So that's a long way of saying the president has to say that to say, I'm just like you, uh, because that break in secular one has been so, so full, um, so full on. Do you think that like America's changing though, or has it, do you think it's like, so rooted in like this heavy secular one, that's why it's not secular to frame, or do you, do you kind of see kind of that break begin to happen? I think that break is, is, is happening and, and, and it will be really interesting to see what happens in the next 10 years. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a, a lament of the Trump administration or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, it, it becomes the kind of end of this kind of civic religion. Um, and I think there's so many people who are uh, a good amount of people who, it, well, to say that it is polarized people even more so. And so some of this, America has almost always believed that religion, particularly the Christian religion, is a good thing within society. And I think some of the ways that Christian language has been co-opted by the Trump administration, leads younger generations. We could go to our, our Gen Z or our iGen or whatever we call them. They don't believe that as much anymore. You know, even if earlier generations were uninterested, they weren't secularized in the sense of feeling like, I want nothing to do or I don't trust in any way religious institutions. And that's starting to happen um, more now. And so you can look across the West and like after World War I, it was a huge kind of period of the loss of trust in religious institutions in the UK. And in Canada, it happened after World War II. And in the States, it happened after Vietnam, but really only with the mainline churches, not with the evangelical churches. And so what's happening right now is that, that moment of dissonance in that moment of confusion in that moment of, I don't know if I can trust these institutions anymore happening with evangelicalism because of, of this moment. alignment to Trump. Yeah, I, I think so. I could be wrong. But I wonder I if it's also like the many 
kind of scandals that's happened in the evangelical church in the last couple of years too, right? Like there is that kind of like, well, like all of this kind of the veneer of like hopefulness and, and, and holiness has just kind of gone sour. So it's like, where do you turn and what is your hope kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. When you see so many megachurch pastors who have had bad moments too, for sure. Yeah. I'm also kind of curious, where, where do you think Canada is? Where do I think Canada is within that? I yeah. think, um, well, Canada, I think obviously Canada is way more, of a secular two country than the, than the States is. And so I tend to always see Canada as much more like Europe than like, like America in that sense, when it, when it comes to the seculars, just because of being a Commonwealth and just the different history. Like I said, um, I mean, Taylor does kind of mention this, that after world war two, that the Canadian experience in this kind of easy civic religion just kind of went away. And that didn't, that didn't happen in America necessarily. Like, the narrative of being the ones who saved the world and the kind of American hubris uh, just kept from that. The other thing that's interesting about Canada compared to the States, I think, is that the in the States, we just, and this is a completely kind of delusional thing, but we have no kind of conception of anything that happened before secular one. So like any kind of view of the ancient regime, like the world of kings and queens, like we just, we don't have it. Like I once flew into Kelowna in BC and went went through the passport check and there was a picture of elizabeth like behind the passport guy in this little airport in Kelowna. and it was odd for me because i was like wait what what canada like we play hockey together and like you know like i know you so well canada why would you have a picture of the queen because in the american kind of consciousness you would never do that like like the states when with the royal weddings and stuff usually i mean people watch here but it's lower here than almost anywhere else in in the world or at least in the western world Canada just has a different history. And I think Canada has been more connected to the long arc of kind of European history that Taylor is kind of pointing to than America has. America has this kind of delusion that in 1776, we just kind of created ourselves. You know, we just, we just did it. And, and, you know, compared to like the French, our revolution, because we were an ocean away, actually stuck, you know, like the French, it took three times for their revolution to actually stay in america just kind of happened mainly because it was a pretty small agrarian society like i said an ocean away that it, it kind of held but that led to this kind of american hubris of american exceptionalism and my experience with canada is it doesn't quite have a kind of i mean there may be a little kind of hidden canadian exceptionalism when it comes to your tim horton's coffee and oh yeah hockey, hockey and, man you, you preach oh, it. Your hockey i know you got both <laughs> bubble cities so you guys got to be feeling like you're you're the greatest but yeah, it's a, it's a very different kind of thing. And that's why the Canadian national slogan is, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Not untrue, but we, we laugh because it is true. We laugh yeah. because it's true. It was just really fascinating to hear what you were saying, because I think my experience of the diaspora communities is that they've become quite Americanized. And yet we live in a broader Canadian context. And so as we're kind of navigating really all three sort of secularisms, if I could say it that way, what, what would you say for people who are pastoring in this context and trying to identify the water that we're swimming in? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would want to say ultimately, and it, it sometimes feels, you know, a little bit grandiose, but 
And we have to, when we're ministering this in this period, we have to be aware of the secular two tensions. Like, you know, like I, I, I don't want to be idealistic and be like, don't worry about your budget and don't worry about raising money. And who cares if there's only six people at your church? You know, you're, you're, that means you're doing well. There's a certain way of justifying really bad ministry in that way. And I, I don't want to do that. So we have to be concerned about those things. But I do think that at the heart of ministry going forward is that we have to find ways of helping our people have an imagination for where God acts and moves. And so really practically, I think we have to kind of think for ourselves, like, where is it that our people encounter the living Jesus Christ? Like, where does, where does that happen? And that's what I tried to do in the second half of, of the pastor in the secular age is try to actually wager on where I think that is, you know, uh, theologically and biblically for me. And I don't think that anyone has to like say, oh yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I hope it's an invitation for people to try to discover for themselves what that looks like within their context, what that, what that looks like within their tradition. But I do think that that has to be the way forward. Like the great temptation of that blue book was after doing the whole history and, you know, going from Augustine through to the um, Rick Warren is... Which was awesome, by the way. Thank you. Priests, I, I, priests I getting their it. heads bashed in. I was like, that's crazy. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of Game of Thrones kind of stuff in, in that, you know, especially in the early piece of it. But the temptation was then like to try to create a pastor, you know what I mean? Like I already had probably too many sports references in this podcast, but like it was kind of like a Madden, you know, like make a player or, you know, something like that. Like, how would you make a pastor to be really set up to thrive in a secular three age? That was like the temptation, but that seems to be so functional. And I think instead it is, it really becomes the challenge of how do we lead our people back into some imagination for transcendence? And what do we even mean by transcendence? And, and that is where Taylor is probably different than a lot of us Protestants is that Taylor is a Catholic, you know, he's a Quebecois Catholic. And so when he thinks transcendence, he's not thinking of like escape from the world, but he is thinking of something deeply sacramental. Um, he is thinking more of cathedrals with frescoes on the ceilings and things like that. And as Protestants, though, I think we tend to think of our kind of transcendent reality as a God who becomes really close to us incarnationally. But this God who becomes so close at hand also is completely other. And that becomes kind of the challenge is that, uh, how do we name a God so close at hand that comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ? but yet so close at hand is also completely other and therefore is a true God of, of true God. But moving people in that direction becomes the challenge. And I just tend to believe that where that actually occurs is in these experiences of either receiving or giving ministry, that people feel a transcendent reality in that. And I ultimately want the pastor to recognize that she is doing something incredibly profound when she does ministry and something that can be actually taken away from her or can kind of be hollowed out if she gets too focused on secular too. Because then she's thinking like, oh, I just need to read more business books or I need to go, I need to get a marketing degree to make this work. As opposed to saying, no, I mean, ministry may be the very place where God encounters us. And this is what you've been called into. And ministry doesn't just mean leading the like core functions of the institutional church. It means encountering persons and hearing their stories and praying with them. And so, you know, the book ends really with prayer being the core thing. And it seems up against the declines of secular too, it seems 
you know, it seems like trying to fight a war with a slingshot or something. I mean, it seems so weak, but I guess that's the kind of Pauline logic here is that the weakness is where the strength is, you know, in, in prayer, maybe prayer is how I think we practically address a secular three reality. And we invite people, even people who are so, people who are, who do not believe, I mean, you talk about the missional kind of piece here is maybe part of the missional uh, kind of move forward is to invite people to pray even people who don't believe and that prayer becomes the fragilization of their unbelief. And what happens in the midst of that? Well, you can't control it. Um, but it does set you and the one prayed for before a living God. And, um, all of a sudden that becomes God's responsibility. And our responsibility is to wait for this God to act and trust that this God will arrive. And that's really hard against secular too, because in secular two, you're told, hurry up, get busy or you're going to die. You better do something or you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. And I think faithfulness is actually waiting and, and, and taking faith and waiting for this God to arrive. So to jump off that, reading your yellow book, yeah, which I found, you know, there's a lot of great nuggets with it, within there. I am interested with that, though, because like, I think you're alluding to what faith formation looks like. Faith formation, what does that look like now? Just as a practical thing, because, you know, we don't have that much time, but what does that faith formation look like during something like this pandemic? Yeah, you know, if, if we're gonna do that with people, what? And I was reading another article that you wrote to prepare for this <laughs> about discipling or, or during the digital age, uh, faith formation at digital age. And even, this was, you know, you wrote that pre-COVID, right? But what does that look like for you know a lot of now that we're engaging online, we're engaging social media, video conferencing, all this kind of stuff. And I think even now more than ever, I think you were talking about consumption and intimacy as which. I think it's not just a youth issue, right? It's 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 like adults. It's it's young young professionals that I a lot that work with. They definitely have have those things that they're turning to. But this faith formation, you talk about suffering. You talk about the the need to engage that way. To like you're saying, create spaces, whether it's to pray to for this transcendent. Like, what's a way that that you like out of all that learning and because you know reading your your yellow book on uh, faith formation. It's like, how would you kind of see that happening during this pandemic? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, you know, I actually feel really torn within it. I mean, first of all, we just have to say that like the pandemic, it, it blows, like it's, it's so hard. You know what I mean? Like it's, and it's so hard in such a kind of baseline hum that just seems to just always be there. And sometimes you can kind of concentrate in a way that you don't hear the hum and then sometimes it makes you drives you out of your mind but i think in the pandemic what there's there's two things that i'm trying to get at in that yellow book that i think in in some ways the pandemic gives us an opportunity and the other ways it makes it even more difficult and the kind of two things are the confession of a death experience which seems makes me seem very bleak and dark but there is this sense at least in the pauline tradition that it is the confession of your experience at the cross where God meets us, you know, like your lived experience of being at the cross. And so I think there, there's this moment within this pandemic where all the things we used to, especially as maybe middle-class people used to kind of hide in from our death experience, like just getting your kid into that school or, you know, staying busy trying to get this promotion or, you know, just hanging out with these people and, you know, these kind of hobbies and these things you're interested in. All those slow down to a point where you become really aware that you're a finite human being who needs something outside of you to save you and that you, you can't save yourself. You know, the part of the, the illusion of particularly 
upwardly mobile middle-class people is kind of like if you find the right strategies and watch the right YouTube videos and have the right therapist, you can do everything. You know, you can, you can make it, you can do whatever you want. And now we're living in a situation where impossibility just falls in our lap and there's just, there's no way to solve it. There's no quick fix. There's no attitude adjustment necessarily that will just take it away. You just have to bear this impossibility. That's the, there's an opportunity within that. But the second thing that's so hard is particularly in my kind of theological imagination is what you need in those moments are this person to person encounter of, of ministry where someone stands beside you and shares in that depth experience. So the, the, the emphasis I think for the pastor here that we're, that no one has really been trained in is how do you still have those true experiences of persons in ministry across a digital platform or in some way where you can't actually be in a room with someone. And I think that they can happen, but I think they're, they're harder. I don't know about, about what you guys all experience, but like Zoom is, Zoom can do some amazing things. We're on it right now and I'm really enjoying hanging out with the four of you, but it would be a different experience if we were in, actually in the same room together, you know? And so that becomes the challenge because really for me, the heart of my kind of theological move, even when it comes to faith formation, is it becomes the narrating of these experiences, the, the bearing of these death experiences with one another. But story becomes really important within that. So story becomes what is the tissue that holds the kind of death experience and the encounter with persons as ministering to one another together as kind of language animals, as Taylor would say, as these kind of weird creatures who write poetry and tell stories to each other. You know, we, we need narratives. And so I think maybe one of the practical forms of if we can't be in the same room is how do we spend times really fronting stories with one another? And there are ways we could do that. And you know, one of the suggestions I've I've had is like, what would it mean for your young people in your church to do kind of like micro podcasts with people in your church and to like write two or three prompt questions and have a 75 year old woman in her church tell a story that probably no one in the church has ever heard before. And what is, what does that mean? So maybe there's ways we can, we can help that narration happen, but at some point we have to get back into probably being in the same room with each other. But yeah, the pandemic is a tricky thing. And and all the other inequities and things that will come out because of it will be, I think, even more front burner for us as we think about ministry going forward. That is gold. so awesome. It's so gold. It's a lot to even think about how to make that shift in our lives to kind of give and receive in that way and to be entering into those type of spaces because it's foreign, because it's not something that is, it's not just a flick of a switch. It's, just, it's actually like a complete transformation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I wonder if that's like, like this whole pandemic unearths a lot of kind of dormant realities that we, we've kind of lost sight of, maybe because we're in a secular age two, secular two kind of thing, where like we're focused, all constantly focusing on how do we keep up with this church? How do we keep up with this church? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you can't. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not up to you. You can't even meet together. And, and then there comes to the kind of this this breaking point it's like okay like we really have to, to rethink yeah i think that's absolutely right is that you just can't you can't kind of hide in the illusions of secular too right now because you know it can't just be about how many people show up on sunday or how many program offerings you have when you have zero like you have been 
brought to zero. I mean, I guess you can look at how many streams you have and how many people show up on your Bible study Zoom and things like that. I mean, there will always be ways we'll count and evaluate ourselves that way. But in another sense, it becomes a pivotal moment to try to think about, okay, these people are dealing with certain death experiences here of, of loss. I mean, you know, just think of how many people have lost so much, like the trip you've been saving for to go to Europe for the first time, and you're going to go to the Louvre, and you're going to do this trip, you know, on May 15th, and you're going to take your mother who had never been to Europe before, and all of a sudden, you can't go. And you're pretty aware that she's too old to make next year a possibility. And you just have to grieve the fact that it feels superficial, especially compared to people on ventilators and hospital rooms, it just feels utterly superficial that you're sad that you didn't get to go and have the trip with your mom to Paris that she'd always dreamt of. But at another level, it really is painful. And it really does stink that it didn't, didn't happen. Um, and I guess what we can do now is that we, we are freed from thinking, oh, what really matters is just to get that person to church and get that person committed and wonder how much they're giving. Now, how do we kind of cross the barriers we have technologically, but say, yeah, we, we need moments of confession and prayer um, now more than ever. And, you know, if we, if we circle back to prayer, prayer is a form of waiting and it's an attentive waiting um, for God to act. And maybe what we're supposed to be forming people into now and inviting the rest of the world into in some ways is attentiveness while we wait. And man, for late modern people, North Americans particularly, but probably everyone, like waiting is hard. You know, we're all been formed by Homer Simpson in that, you know, the classic episode when he puts, when he puts his food in the microwave and it's like 15 seconds, he's like, Oh, why so long? You know what I mean? Like we're all kind of formed and that waiting, waiting equals suck, you know, like waiting sucks, but there is a deep spiritual formation to waiting and we are in a global moment of waiting. And so how do we, how do we, receive as well as give ministry in that moment. And that's another thing I think would be huge for the pastor is how do you model that you're receiving ministry as much as giving it, that it can't be just your job to give it, give it, give it, especially in this time. I think we're seeing a lot of pastors now as we're into month five and close to six into this, or at least five moving towards six, we'll be in it six, seven, eight, nine months, maybe longer burning out. I mean, just burnt out because of the, just the transition in this and I think pastors more than ever need be, need to receive as much as give ministry. But part of your job as a leader then is to, in some ways, narrate and publicly live before your people the gift you've been given of ministry. I think it's a beautiful thing we see with Jesus, that Jesus gives and receives ministry. I mean, that's the beauty of this, the story of, of the oil on his feet, is that um, when everyone's saying, well, you, let's think of just think of what this money could have done in the stock market, or just think of how many secular two issues could have been solved if we would have sold this money and given it to the poor. Just think of how cool our youth room would have been if we would have done that. Instead, Jesus is like, no, 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 no. She is preparing me for my death. She, she is, she's participating in this moment with me. I, what's important for you to see is that the Son of God is receiving this ministry and that her, she's humanized in the fact that I see her as a minister. And I'm, showing you the very economy of God that, that we need to receive ministry as much as give it. That has been so helpful and valuable for us. I think there's been so much to continue to wrestle through and continue to seek God on. And, you know, we're in this pandemic season and, you know, I hope, and I think the conversation that, you know, four of us, you know, do have is that we hope that we don't miss how God is showing up and how God is arriving and ministering in this 
and that we're okay with, hey, if this is leading us into something completely new, or what does it mean for us to be the people of God together, then amen to that, and let's be waiting and anticipating. So thank you so much, Andrew, for giving some of your time to spend with us and to share some of the insights and reflections that you have in regards to some of your study, but also personally. So thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. It's been really fun. That's it for our episode today. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation. It has been fascinating, especially in regards to what does it mean as we engage culture, as we are in God's mission? How do we understand secularism and what does it mean for us as pastors and in ministry? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can connect with us through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email and give us some of your thoughts about how you are wrestling with what does it mean to engage a secular age? If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review our podcast. That really helps us to get this conversation out there and continue to invite more people into it. So please remember to do that. You know, it is our hope that we continue to engage the Canadian Asian conversation. So please remember to do that so that we can continue to have this conversation reach more people. Once again, you have been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.